If you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to catch a glimpse of your redemptive love and the implications of that love upon our lives in a manner that will consume us and compel us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're beginning, we're continuing our series this morning on the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a love story. It's a love story within a love story. It's a love story within a greater love story of God's redemptive plan in which he is drawing a people unto himself, leading them from brokenness to a place of beauty, from hopelessness to a place of hope, to, to despair, from despair to a place of sheer delight. The book of Ruth is a story within a much greater story in which we all find ourselves in the middle of this morning. Uh, no love story ever written has anything on the book of Ruth. The Twilight series, nothing compared to the book of Ruth. Last week we looked at Ruth chapter 1. And let me summarize Ruth chapter 1. By the end of Ruth chapter 1, we were introduced to two places, Bethlehem and Moab. Bethlehem was the place within the promised land that God had given to his children. Bethlehem was a place that represented God's promise, that represented his people's faith and obedience. But this was in the time of Judges, meaning that it was in a cyclical, cyclical season of Israel's history in which they would fall into sin, God would discipline them, and he would uh, listen to their cries for rescue and deliver them again. And uh, in the midst of this cyclical season of Israel's history, there was a famine in the land. And this is the context of the book of Ruth. And so Bethlehem, which means house of bread, had no bread. So the second place in chapter 1 that we're introduced to is Moab. Very significant. Moab uh, was a place with a very... Um, a notorious history in Israel's in, in, in Scripture. Moab began as a people because of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. And that lineage are the Moabites. Not a very promising beginning for a people. And on top of that, we read in the book of Deuteronomy, and this was very critical to understand to really capture the essence of the book of Ruth. In Moab's history, the Moabite women in the book of Deuteronomy sexually seduced the Hebrew men and caused them not only to, to commit sexual immorality and fornication and, adult, and, and, and adultery, but also sexually immoral idolatry. And as a result of this, the judgment of God fell upon Israel in 24 4,000 Hebrew people died. So these are the Moabite people. And on top of that, the, 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 the Jewish people, the, the Hebrew people are passing and wandering and they try to uh, uh, ask the, the Moabites for safe passage through their territory and that king refused. So there's this tension between the Hebrews and the Moabites. And on top of that, the Hebrews just want to keep away from Moabites, especially in light of their history, especially Moabite women. So two places in chapter 1. And then we're introduced to, well, two people. And chapter 1 concludes with two people. The first is a bitter Naomi. 
And the second person that chapter 1 concludes with is a barren Ruth. So Elimelech takes his family from the house of bread that had no bread to, of all places, the place of Moab that was saying, God, we're going to walk by sight, not by faith. We're not going to rely upon you. We're going to do it our way. And they went to the unthinkable place of Moab. Naomi's husband Elimelech died. So her two sons, Naomi's two sons, married two Women, and of all things, they were Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then Naomi's two sons died. So now we're left with three widows. And Orpah, she bells out and says, I'm going to go back to my people. But then Naomi and Ruth finally go back to the house of bread that now has bread. And so there's a glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 1. However, we see bitter Naomi and barren Ruth because Ruth had no children. Naomi had no more children. And Orpah had no more children. So we see bitter Naomi and barren Ruth are desperate and they are destitute. So we're introduced to these two places, and we're introduced to these two people, Bitter Naomi, Baron Ruth, and now as they go back to Bethlehem, we see that they have two problems. They are without food, and they are without family. They're without food, they're just trying to make it from day to day, and they're without family. They are desperate, and they are destitute. And then we're introduced to two names of God at the end of chapter 1. God is Almighty, and God is Yahweh, meaning He's high and lifted up, and He's magnificent, and He's sovereign, and His ways are mysterious, and His ways are beyond our ways, but He's Yahweh. He's close to the brokenhearted. He's near, and He's tender. So... I read in a Time Magazine article, I believe it was in 1992 or so, that uh, there was a man who sold a first copy of the Declaration of Independence at auction for $1.2 million. Pretty spectacular, right? But the real amazing thing about that story was not the price of the first copy of the Declaration of Independence. The really amazing thing about the story was the surprise discovery of its location. This man went to a flea market and he paid four bucks for a painting. It was a cheap painting he described as a dismal country scene. He bought because he liked the frame. So he takes this painting home of this dreary, dismal country scene. He peels back the canvas and he finds folded neatly into the size of an envelope a first copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now what's remarkable to me about that story is that that treasure, though hidden behind a dark, dreary, dismal scene, was ever present all along. And this is what we see in Ruth chapter 1. Their scene was a 10-year-long nightmare. It was dreary, it was dismal, but hidden behind the canvas all along was the presence of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God. And we see in Ruth chapter 2 that the power and the presence of God, though always present, hidden, is now about to blend. And so it is in our lives. When we are most sorrowful through tragic situations. God is ever-present behind these dreary scenes working to blend and bring about great surprising victories in our life. When God seems most distant, when He seems most silent, He is oftentimes most actively at work to display His faithfulness in our lives. All throughout Scripture, we see that God orchestrates, He designs people's deepest sorrows to bring about their greatest delight. 
And if you're walking through a drizzy, dismal scene, know that the providence of God, the power of God, the beauty of God is ever-present. Just keep turning the pages of your life. Sometimes the presence and power of God blends gradually. Sometimes it blends suddenly, but it will blend. And when it does, it will blend gloriously for your desire, for your satisfaction, for his greatest glory in your life. This is the case with Ruth chapter 2. Let's begin Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. Now your Bible might say that this particular man, this relative of bitter Naomi, and as we see in Ruth chapter 1 that her name means pleasant, but at the end of Ruth chapter 1 they said, Hi Naomi, hi pleasant, and she said, Don't you call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because that means bitter. Well, she had a relative. He was a worthy man or a man of standing. Now, this could mean that he's wealthy, and this could mean that he has strong character and a strong reputation. But without a doubt, in the context, it means both. He is a worthy man, a man of standing. He is wealthy, and he has strong character. He is a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, who died. And his name was Boaz. Enter the hero of the story. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are many types of Christ, a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus. For example, the very first type of Christ that we see, this is a type of Christ in opposites. Types of Christ are messianic, prophetic pictures of Jesus so that we can more clearly understand Christ's purpose in our life and we can more fully understand who he is and how we can follow him. Well, the first type of Christ in Scripture is Adam. And he was a type of Jesus. In fact, in Scripture, Jesus is even called the second Adam. That's how much a type of Christ Adam is. But it's a type of Christ in opposites. In opposites, in contrast, we understand more fully the person and the the purpose of Jesus in our lives. Adam was a type of Christ because through his selfishness and active disobedience, death reigned to the entire human race. But Jesus, the second Adam, through his selflessness and obedience, life and eternal life can reign through the entire human race. We keep turning the pages of Scripture, and we also see that Moses was a type of Christ. There's many similarities between Moses and Jesus. In fact, Moses fasted 40 days. Jesus fasted 40 days. Moses was in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus again fasted 40 days. And there are many similarities. Moses brought the law. Jesus brings grace We see Jonah was a type of Christ. Uh, uh, Jonah was basically the scapegoat. He was thrown overboard so that the ship could, could bypass the storm and they could live. Jesus was thrown overboard. He was the scapegoat. He went to the cross so we could live. As Jonah spent three days in the belly of the well, so Jesus spent three days in the grave. David was a type of Christ. He stood in front of the Goliath, in front of the giant, and said, and said, you will die. Prepare to die. Jesus is the king of kings who stands in front of sin and death and said, death will die, and life and freedom will reign to my people. And enter Boaz, a type of Christ. We see that Boaz is the redeemer. And throughout chapter 2, we're going to see four characteristics of this Redeemer and two implications upon the redeemed. Throughout chapter 2, we're going to look at four characteristics of a Redeemer and two characteristics of the redeemed. So, enter Boaz, chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite, Scripture just won't let us forget that she is a Moabite. 
In fact, when Naomi came back from uh, Moab to Bethlehem, her husband died, her two sons had died, Ruth was with her, and all the ladies exclaimed, Naomi, and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And she said, I come back with nothing. And with that, all the women were clamoring and talking to Naomi, and then they looked at Ruth. And Ruth has nothing to do but to look down at the ground as she rehearses those words in her mind, I guess I am nothing. She just pledged her undying loyal support to Naomi. Don't tell me to leave you, because where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. Your God will be my God. And she returns with Naomi, and Naomi says, I come back empty-handed. Why? Because she's a Moabite. Her history is one of her family history. Her ancestry is one of fornication. It's one of sexual immorality. It's one of idolatry. It's one of tension between God's people and her people. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Again, Naomi and Ruth are destitute and they are desperate. They have no food and they have no family. They are in sheer survival mode. It's interesting that uh, God um, provided for people in this situation. This was their welfare system. It, it was a welfare system in which it was a tax, uh, as we have, but it was, it was a tax that was also a, a job-creating opportunity. And so this was, the, this was the system that God ordained in this cultural, agricultural land. Uh, throughout the Pentateuch, God told his people through Moses, the law of Moses, so, you know, you're, you're wealthy, you're blessed, God's taken care of you, you have land, and it's wheat, and you're growing crops, and so when you have your workers on the land, and they're going through harvesting the land, don't harvest it twice, don't comb through it twice, just comb through it one time. Because when you comb through it just one time, you're going to not get everything. There's going to be leftovers. So just comb through it one time, not a second time. That'll give the Naomi's and the Ruth's, the destitute, the desperate, those without food, those without family, those who are just trying to survive every day, that'll give them an opportunity to go back and pick up what you missed. And on top of that, your field is a rectangular. It's shaped like a rectangle. Don't, don't cut a 90-degree corner. Just sort of round off the edges. That'll leave the corners for the destitute and the desperate, the Ruths and the Naomi's. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, and again, they were desperate and destitute without food and family, and she said, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I can find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, the actual language in the original Hebrew is so rich here. As it turned out, or by chance, or as it just so happened. Had you ever been watching like a chick flick or something like this? I mean, it is just so terribly coincidental. You're thinking, oh, right. Like, is anybody really even buying this? Well, this is exactly what happens. The timing is just too perfect to be a coincidence. And so, with a play on words, and in a fun type way, the writer says, and by chance, or it just so happened, or as it turned out, and 
Ruth is working a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And know this, this was no accident. This was a divine appointment. And know this about your life. There are no accidents. There are divine appointments. And again, when God seems the furthest from you, he is the most at work to display his faithfulness in your life, working about your deepest sorrow to bring about your deepest satisfaction. And it's not by accident, because nothing just happens. There is no sorrow, no setback, no disappointment, no failure in your life, no tragedy that just happens. In God's foresight, in His infinite wisdom, in His master plan, He has woven that into His redemptive story to display His faithfulness, His love, and His power, and His grace into your life. Nothing just happens. Verse 4. Then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And then Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, referring to Ruth, who does this young woman belong to? In other words, wow, check her out in the original Hebrew. And this is the first characteristic of a redeemer. A redeemer seeks out the destitute and the desperate. And this is how Boaz began his relationship with the desperate and the destitute, without food, without family, Moabite. He sought her out. So, who does this young woman belong to? First characteristic of the Redeemer. The Redeemer seeks out the desperate and the destitute. The overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Second characteristic of a redeemer. First, the redeemer seeks out the desperate and the destitute. Second characteristic of a redeemer. A redeemer saves the desperate and the destitute. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, he initiates He initiates the conversation. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And we see at the end of this chapter that obviously in this context, in this culture, it's dangerous. This is a context and culture where women are oftentimes considered property. And it was very dangerous. And especially a woman like this who has no rights, no standing whatsoever, who is also very beautiful. And so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Daughter, because Boaz is older than her. And also he's he's speaking to her tenderly. And respectfully, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow them after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled at this. Ruth bows down with her face to the ground and she asks him, why have I found such favor in your eyes and why have you noticed me a foreigner and a Moabite at that? And verse 11, Boaz replies, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how 
how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And know this. You know, there's, there's, a, there, there's an investing philosophy called a mutual fund. And there's an investing uh, philosophy called um, uh, a hedge fund. Uh, one, is, one is very risky. One is very conservative. Basically, a mutual fund is you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You, you spread it out, right? So if one thing doesn't work for you, well, then this thing will work for you because it's very diverse. That's mutual fund. That's very conservative. Now, the hedge fund, basically, you put all your eggs in one basket, and if it crashes, you crash. But if it does well, I mean, you're going to soar, Right? When Ruth left Moab to go to Bethlehem, she didn't have this mutual fund mindset where I'm going to place a little confidence because maybe your God, Yahweh, is the real God, but I'm also going to hold on to the gods of my fathers, and I'm also going to walk by sight, not by faith. No, no, no. It was entirely hedge fund. It was all risk. She told Naomi, I'm going to place 100% confidence in your God, and if your God comes through, well, great. But if your God falters or doesn't come through or doesn't show compassion to this moment, Moabite, well, I guess I'm in trouble. And Boaz said, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And anytime we place all confidence in God, anytime we take refuge under the wings of the Almighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God who came from heaven to earth and died on the cross, the God who conquered death, He will provide for us. Verse 13, may I come to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I don't even have the standing of one of your servants. She said, I'm the lowest of the lows on this social totem pole. I'm a Moabite, desperate, destitute, no food, no family, and yet you're giving me the time of day. And not only that, but you're being kind to me. First characteristic of a redeemer, a redeemer seeks out the destitute and the desperate. Second characteristic of a redeemer, a redeemer saves the desperate and the destitute. Fourth characteristic of a redeemer. A redeemer serves the desperate and the destitute. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in wine and vinegar. This is Boaz and Ruth's very first date. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all, and she, and she even had some left over. We see later that what Ruth did was, she's just like so many of you ladies, she put it in her purse, if she had a purse, because she took the leftovers home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She, she ate. This was the biggest meal that Ruth had had in years. She ate until she was completely satisfied, and she even had leftovers, and she stashed those under the napkins to take home to her mother-in-law. And I know that everybody was watching, the workers and the other servants and, and the managers and the foremen were watching Boaz thinking, what's he doing? She's the lowest of low. She's a Moabite at that. But this is what a redeemer does. A redeemer seeks out the, de the desperate, saves the desperate and destitute, serves the desperate and destitute. Verse 15. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. And this is the fourth characteristic of a redeemer. A redeemer showers the desperate and the destitute with blessing on top of blessing. So she gets up. 
Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. And then he tells his men this, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then, the, then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it, amounts, it amounted to about an ephah. This is about a month's worth of food. This is a woman between she and her mother-in-law who were striving to make it from day to day, and their stomachs were always hungry. And now they have enough food for an entire month because of the kindness of Boaz. He showered her with blessings. It weighed from 35 to 50 pounds. And she picked it up, and she carried it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she kind of stashed under the napkin, and she had given it to Naomi. And when her mother-in-law saw her, she said, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And we see that things are starting to shift for Naomi. Bitter is becoming blessed. Her stern, harsh countenance is starting to become joyful. And she's beginning to use uh, words that are blessed instead of words that are bitter. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. And you can see the writer sort of build the tension. The name of the man that I worked with today And you can see Naomi's face become more and more engaged and more and more interested as we see that she asked repeatedly, who was so kind to you? Who blessed you? The man, the name of the man in which I worked with today is Boaz. And with this, Naomi's heart, her heart leaps with joy. Her heart once again has hope. The Lord Bless him, she said to her daughter-in-law. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And Ruth and Naomi are both beginning to see that God's master plan was always at work in their life. His presence, his power was always behind their 10-year nightmare. And now it's beginning to blend into reality. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. This man is our close relative. This one, this man, Boaz, he's one of our guardian, here's the word, redeemers. This is a legal term. You have to read Leviticus chapter 25. That's your assignment this week, to really understand a redeemer in this culture, in this context of of, of Israel's history. Basically, if there was somebody who fell into really hard times and they had to mortgage their property as Elimelech did in order to move to Moab, he lost his land. Well, if there was a close relative and he had the resources, then he had an obligation to buy back that land that he lost because of his hard times. Thus, he redeemed the land. He was a redeemer. Also, if there was somebody in this exact situation, like Ruth, whose husband died, like like Naomi, whose husband died and and, and her sons died, and so there was no name to carry on their lineage, which in this culture, in this context, was an absolute tragedy for the family name to stop. Well, then in this particular context, if there was a family member who was close enough, who had the resources, he could buy back the land that was lost, and he could marry the widow, and that name would perpetuate of the deceased to honor him. 
So a redeemer had to have these three characteristics. He had to have the proper relation to the destitute and the desperate. He had to have the proper resources in order to buy back the land and in order to to, to marry the widow. And he had to have the resolve to do it. He had to have the the will to do it. And we'll see in Ruth chapter 4 that there was actually a closer relation that should have been the redeemer. He was closer in relation and he had the resources, but he lacked the resolve. In fact, we're going to see in Ruth chapter 4 that Boaz had to approach this particular uh, potential redeemer who had a closer, closer family bloodline relation to Ruth and Naomi. And he said, sure, yeah, I'll buy her back and didn't think much of it. Yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll redeem the property. I'll redeem the name. I'll, I'll marry uh, Ruth. But then... Boaz just sort of slips it in there. You do know that she's a, she's a Moabite. And he's like, that's fine. I'm not really in redemption mood right now. And then Boaz stands up, we'll see in a couple of weeks, and said, I'll buy her. Verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Now, Naomi, she's already beginning to strategize. She's already playing matchmaker to set Ruth and Boaz up. Stay close to him or you'll be harmed in somebody else's field. In verse 23, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, we touched on this last week. Boaz and Ruth will ultimately get married. They're going to have a son, and that son's name is going to be Obed. Obed is going to grow up, and he's going to have a son. His son will be named Jesse. Jesse's going to grow up. Well, he's going to have eight sons. And the youngest of his eight sons will be named David, who we know as King David. Well, King David will have sons, and those sons will have sons, and those sons will have sons, until ultimately we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that there is a young girl named Mary who has a son, and his name is Jesus, the Savior of the world. And we see in Jesus, his lineage, his bloodline is a Moabite woman, a Moabite, a, a Moabite woman named Ruth. And we look at that and we have to ask, what is a Moabite woman doing in the lineage, the bloodline of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Redeemer of the world? What is she doing there? She is there because of a Redeemer who sought her out when she was destitute, who saved her. Who served her? Who showered her with blessings? What is she doing there? She is in the bloodline. She is in the family of the Messiah for the exact same reason that you and I are. Because when we are destitute in our sins, when we are barren in our spirits, and we haven't the ability to bring forth any goodness, any righteousness whatsoever, 
to earn our way into heaven or to earn our way into the family of God. We have a Redeemer, and this Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus sought us out when we were destitute. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were desperate, while we were destitute, while we were barren of any righteousness. He sought us out. We love him because he first loved us. He sought us out, and he saved us on the cross. We sang, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. His blood cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He redeemed us. He redeemed our past so that he'll turn our consequences into blessings. And not only that, he serves us. Now we're in the family of God. And he says, why find satisfaction outside of a relationship with me? My fields for you are wide unto harvest. It's enough to satisfy your every need. As St. Augustine said, Oh God, you've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O oh God. We have no reason to have to find satisfaction outside of the bread of life, the living waters, Jesus Christ. He serves us by his spirit. He takes care of our daily needs. And not only that, but he showers us with his blessings and his goodness. Blessing on top of blessing. Goodness on top of goodness. This is our Redeemer. This is Jesus. He sought us out. He saved us. He served us. He showers us with his goodness and mercy. Not because we deserved it. We are worse than Moabites. We are in spiritual rebellion against God before he sought us out and saved us. He is our Redeemer. What are the implications upon the redeemed? Four characteristics of the redeemed, of the Redeemer. The Redeemer Seeks out the destitute, saves the destitute, serves the destitute, showers the destitute with his goodness, kindness, mercy, and loves, brings them into the family of God, satisfies their heart with good things, provides for them the promise of life, a relationship throughout life. By his spirit, gives us everything that we need, stacks up on top of our life, blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing. What is the result of this? There's two consequences, two implications of the redeemed. One, we are captivated by the mystery of God's grace. We are captivated by the mystery of God's grace. Have you ever asked why me about bad things that happen in your life? Why me? Why me? Why me? I, I, I don't. I don't. This is a hard world. And I'm grateful for each day, each breath. I, I, I honestly, I don't spend any time asking why me about the bad. I understand God's going to redeem them and translate them into the good. He's faithful. He's faithful. But you know what question does perplex me? Why me about his grace? Why me? Huh. Why me? There's six billion people. It's, I think close to seven billion people these days in this world. Seven billion people in this world, most of whom have never, never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never. I recently made a friend from India, and I'm sharing the gospel with her. And she asked me if I ate meat. I said, sure. I love a good hamburger. I said, do you? She goes, oh, no, no, we, we worship the cow. You know, I'm telling her about Jesus, and she's just really just awestruck that the God who created everything would die for her and conquer death. 
And I just look at that and I think, seven billion people in the world, some of them are worshiping, of all things, a cow. Some of them just carve out little statues and worship that. Or here in America, even worse than worshiping a cow or a little statue, they worship themselves. How small is their God? How small is their universe? Or they worship their, the money, or they worship a house, or they worship their family, or they worship Little League baseball or soccer. And I, I wake up in the morning and I say, God, why me? Why have I had the opportunity to hear the gospel a hundred thousand times? Why has it just resonated with such truth in my heart and mind when some people are so difficult to have faith? And on top of this, I read about the destitute and the desperate and those without food and those without family. I've never been in this situation. I didn't ask to be born where I was asked. I didn't ask to be raised where I was asked. I... I, I read this and I, I see that this, that this condition that we read that seems so ancient, it seems so antiquated to us, it seems like a, a civilization so far removed is the normal living conditions for most of the 7 billion people in the world today. And yet, if I go hungry, it's because I just got too busy or I forgot a meal. It's never because I've been destitute or desperate. I do ask why me, but, but I ask why me, God, why have you been so good to me? Why have you sought me out? I, I am the most spiritually barren of them all. There is nothing in me that has produced a righteousness to make me beautiful in his sight, to make him seek me out. No, when I was at my worst, he sought me out and saved me and served me by his blood and, and showers me with goodness by his spirit and daily blessings. Grace is a mystery to me, and it leaves me completely perplexed. God, why? Why me? God has been so faithful in my life. God has been so faithful in this church. Oh, I, I could tell you story after story about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And all I can ask is, why? Grace is a mystery. And if grace is not a mystery to you, then you just don't understand how spiritually barren and destitute and desperate you were. You don't understand how far removed from the family of God you were. You don't understand how far God came from heaven to earth to seek you out and save you. Grace is a mystery. And I love the implications upon Ruth. In verse 10. She bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked Boaz, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me, a foreigner? And this is the mystery of grace. I bow down with my face on the ground and ask Jesus, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me, a sinner? And it is a mystery. And this compels us. The second implication of the four marks of a redeemer, one, we are captivated by grace, and secondly, this compels us into a ministry of grace. It compels us into a ministry of grace. What fuels you? What motivates you? 
Do you want to be an outstanding person, a moral person, a good person, an altruistic person, a religious person? Uh, if, if any of these are your motivations, then they're eventually going to fall short. Our motivation to seek God with passion, our motivation to live for him, to love him, to love a lost and dying world for him is that we have been captivated by a mystery of grace. And this mystery produces a humility and it produces a gratitude in our heart that compels us to share this same grace with everyone everywhere. We open the service reading Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, In view of God's mercy, in view of the mystery of grace, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You want to know what legalism is? You, 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 you want to know what cold, sterile religion that doesn't move the heart of God is? It's presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God without the view of God's mercy. It's striving to do good works or religious works without being compelled by the mystery of grace. So in closing, imagine with me that, that you wake up one morning and there's some kid and he's busted out the window of your car and he's trying to steal your car. And so it's just a 15 or 16-year-old kid, and he just lives down the street for you, so, so you know him, and you understand this is a troubled kid, so, so you walk over to the kid, and, and you have one of three options. Let's play the scenario out first of all. This is what you do. The first option is called justice. You walk over to the kid, and you grab him by the arms, and you grab him hard enough so that he doesn't go, and it's going to put bruises on his arms, and you grab him hard enough, and you say, Hold on a second. You're not going anywhere. You call 911, and you're holding this kid until you hear the sirens. And then you call his parents, and you tell this kid, I'm going to press charges. You're going to pay back everything, the smashed window, the whole bit. That's justice. Now, if you opted for justice, you want to know what many people would call that? That would be called tough love. And you wouldn't be a bad person. You would just be a just person. Justice. Well, here's your second option. Your second option is mercy. Mercy is not giving somebody the justice they deserve. This is what mercy could look like. You walk over to the kid, and you look at him, and you say, man, this is your lucky day. I'm in a good mood, and you better be glad. Just get out of here and never let me see you again. Now, if you opted for mercy, you wouldn't give the kid the justice that he deserved. You would have given him mercy, meaning you didn't give him the justice he deserved, and that wouldn't be bad either. You would be merciful, and if People heard that you were merciful, they would say, well, you're a better person than me. You know, you're sure kinder than me. I, I tell you what, I would have given the kid justice. Just merciful. Here's the third option, grace. Grace is not only affording the kid justice, not giving him the, the, uh, the, the justice that he deserves. It's, it's giving the kid mercy, not giving him the justice he deserves. Grace is going a step further, many steps further and showering blessings upon the kid that he doesn't deserve. Grace could look something like this. You walk over to the kid so as not to scare him. You say, hey, listen, listen, it's okay. I just want you to know that I was your age once, and I did more stupid things than you could imagine. But I see the direction that your life is heading, and it concerns me. And there's something in my heart that has compassion for you. And I know you don't have a dad in your life, 
And I know that you got a lot of problems. I know you're always fighting with your mom. I'll tell you what. You need a car? This is yours. Come see me Wednesday of next week, and I'm going to sign the title over to you. And, and let's take this a step further. I just want to pour into you. I want to mentor you. Meet with me every week and just let me pour leadership into you. Let me pour wisdom into you. Let me pour, pour character. Just let me be a dad to you. Because I want to see you succeed. Now, if you opted for grace, that's scandalous. Your friends would say, what? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? You're enabling the kid. What are you thinking? But you do it in the hopes that that kid at night is going to have this explosion of gratitude in his heart. And it's going to recalibrate his desires and the entire trajectory of his life. And in the same way, our Redeemer could have shown us justice. How many of you are glad that Jesus didn't come to give us justice? He even went beyond mercy. He went the route of grace. And through the blood of Christ, he paid for our sins. He paid for our wrongs. And now he showers upon us forgiveness, his own righteousness, a friendship with him, his spirit, the promise of heaven, help in times of need, joy and spiritual gifts. And he's invited us into his process that he's currently engaged of reconciling a lost and dying world into himself by sharing with them the same grace that we have been given This is our Redeemer. Redeem means to buy back something that was lost when you were destitute and desperate. And by the blood of Jesus, he's bought back our past. And he's bought back our souls. And he's bought back our life. And he bought back our relationship with him. And now he says the most beautiful words I think ever spoken in the history of the universe. Behold, I am making all things new. What all can go under the category of all things? All things. All setbacks, all failures, all sins you've committed, all sins that have been committed against you, all sorrow, all loss, all tragedy, because of our Redeemer, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And just as he redeemed the Moabite and put her in the very family lineage of the Messiah, an unspeakable unspeakable blessing. So God is ordaining your deepest sorrow into your most unspeakable satisfaction for your good and for his glory. This is our redeemer. But you want to know, we have to be compelled by this ministry of grace. If we're not compelled by a ministry of grace, hear this, we were never captivated by the mystery of grace. If we're never compelled by the ministry of grace, we were never captivated by the mystery of grace. If you've never fallen on your face before Jesus, your Redeemer, and you said, why me? And maybe you need to reorient your prayers instead of constantly saying, why me about running out of gas, or why me about needing a new tire, or why me about not getting a promotion, or why me about a coworker, or why me about a family situation. Instead of saying, why me about these things, why not say, why me about the mystery of your grace? Why me about your faithfulness in my life? And when we're captivated by the mystery of grace, we are on our face before Jesus, 
and we cannot help but get up and to be compelled with the ministry of grace, seeking out the destitute, seeking out the desperate, to share with them the same grace in which you've been shown. Are you seeking people out at school? At school, do you seek out the desperate and destitute to show them the same grace that God has shown you at work, your neighbors, uh, at the the health club, whoever it might be, your family? Are you seeking out the destitute and the desperate? We are so pharisaical. We are so religious. We say, when they look like me, when they act like me, when they share my values, when they vote like me, well, then we will fellowship. That is not the spirit of the Redeemer. The Redeemer seeks out the destitute and the desperate to show, to shower them with mercy and grace. And if we're captivated by this mystery, we'll be compelled by this mission to seek out the desperate and the destitute in our neighborhoods, to seek out the desperate and the destitute, people outside the family of God, to show them the same mercy and grace that you've been shown. I used to not like this quote, preach the gospel everywhere you go, but use words only when you have to, because in in one sense it can be a cop-out, right, where you never have to reel it in, you never have to be bold. But you know what? God is kind of stirring that quote in my heart recently. Preach the gospel everywhere you go and use words only when necessary. Because I've come to realize, I think that most people don't share the gospel. Most people don't lead people to Christ. Most people don't seek out the desperate and the destitute to shower them with the same grace that they've been shown because... They are embarrassed. They are embarrassed because their lifestyles don't match their message. They are ashamed to share the gospel because somebody would go, oh, you're a Christian? I would never had any idea. I never would have guessed it. May we be so captivated by this mystery of grace that we humble ourselves before the Lord and we rise up and we Go and we seek out the destitute and the desperate. And let's preach the gospel with our smile. Let's preach the gospel with our joy. Let's preach the gospel with our friendships. Let's preach the gospel by, like Boaz, taking initiative. Let's seek them out. And let's preach the gospel with such joy, such love, such compassion, by meeting needs, by really sacrificing. Let's preach the gospel. And then when it's time to share faith in Christ for the redemption of their souls, your message will match your lifestyle, and you will bear much fruit. Would you stand with me? How do we respond to a Redeemer? Let's just respond like Ruth. With gratitude and with humility, let's be captivated by the mystery of grace. Why me? Why me, God? Why me? But in view of God's mercy, let it stir us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Perhaps you need to be impassioned to see your school as a mission field, impassioned to see your neighborhoods, homes, workplace, the world as a mission field. Perhaps you're a slave to your desires, sinful desires that don't honor God, that don't please God. And What do you need more than anything else? You need a brand new glimpse of the grace and mercy of God to give you a heart of gratitude and humility and righteousness. So let's just respond to the cross. Let's respond to our Redeemer with worship. Would you bow your heads with me? How many of you are grateful for the mystery of grace? Will you be compelled by this mission? Because if you're not compelled, you have not been captivated by grace. But if grace has touched you, 
you're going to be a conduit of this grace to others. And this conduit begins with worship to the one who has redeemed us. So let's just respond in worship.